This is Alice Brooks, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It is going super, super swell. How are you doing? It's it's doing swell as well. <laughs> hey, uh, who is on the show today? A cinematographer, Alice Brooks, is on the show today. Holy crap. So cool. Probably best known currently as the DP of In the Heights. It was amazing to talk to her because her passion in life is filming musicals. Something that could not possibly be more foreign to me. And it was really exciting to hear her point of view on it. She also, she's done some thrillers and some other stuff like that. She's done, a, she's, she's got a variety of stuff, but it was great to talk to someone who made In the Heights, which is the musical of our times. And great to know that her and the director are both just the biggest musical people ever. It was, it was uh, it's a really cool interview. I, I, I'm glad we got to meet her. Well, we'll get to that interview in just a moment, but it is time for Close Focus. And uh, I got a surprise, Ben. What's a surprise? <laughs> Show producer Alana Cody is going to join us for our Close Focus today. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you so much for coming on, Alana. Hi. How are you guys? No, no. We really appreciate it because we are talking about the Olympics and uh, I, 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 I actually know feel so I, much about it. <laughs> we, we, I think that like between the three of us, we comprise one person's <laughs> knowledge of the Olympics, because uh, as I was saying before we started recording, I kind of just don't like watching sports at all. And the Olympics, my association with the Olympics was always that all my favorite TV shows would be postponed so that I could watch, you know, curling or swimming or things I would never watch under any circumstances and, and not nothing against the great curlers and swimmers and runners and skeleton people of the world. But it, it's not something that I would ever choose over narrative television. That was always my feeling about it. Right. I got to be the one now here to defend the Olympics because um, <laughs> I would actually watch the Olympics and it was a dream and goal of mine to go to the 2020 Olympics before there was a pandemic. <laughs> so I actually thought that I might do that this year. But Well, it, and, and that's kind of why we're even talking about the Olympics because it's kind of news. They're being held in Japan and they're doing them this year. They were supposed to be last year. The whole point with the Olympics is it used to be every four years. And then at some point they started staggering the summer and winter Olympics so that every now now I have to put up with this uh, crap every two years. But you only uh, have to put up with the summer or the winter. Well, also, also <laughs> with, you know, the vast expansion of cable and streaming, I kind of don't have to put up with it at all. It's very easy to avoid the Olympics if you're not interested in it, as I am not. But well, the they thing have about to the... spread the pain around <laughs> for the different cities that host it, because it actually costs everybody a lot of money. Um, yeah. I kind of feel like the IOC, the the International Olympic Committee, is sort of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association of athletic (laughs) organizations because they're a shady organization that charges countries outrageous sums of money and they bid against each other to get to do the Olympics. And part and, and like so right now, Japan is getting ready to do the Olympics and their covid numbers are not great and their vaccination numbers are very low. Yeah. And it's. 
by any standard and of safety. The people of Japan have said they really don't want the Olympics to be happening, but they are unable to not do it. Yeah, they, if Japan said no, they'd be out billions of dollars. Yes. Uh, but but actually, it sounds like they can't even say that. They can't even, they don't even really have the option to pull out. The IOC is the only people who have the option to cancel it. And if they're not canceling it, it's really not up to Japan. It sounds like they have to, they have to go forward. Yep. Ugh. Another thing that's driving this is that NBC is hosting and a lot of the big events are going to have on Peacock. And right now, Peacock is... It doesn't have a lot of subscribers, so they're hoping that it's going to push their subscriber numbers. I bet it will. People like this thing that I hate. And moreover, they like to watch people, uh, you know, dive. Something you could like literally do at any community pool any day of the week. You can watch people do fancy dives that you, you couldn't probably see or uh, fancy whatever sports they're doing. You know, shot put, discus. I don't know what the hell they're doing. Stuff that I don't actually care about the rest of my entire life. I'm supposed to suddenly care about every four years. But I bet I it mean, will drive up I think up gymnastics is pretty cool. Yeah, gymnastics is cool. I think the swimming's cool too. So. But I'm with you on the <laughs> curling. That's the Winter Olympics. I know, but still, it's the worst sport. I don't, I don't really differentiate winter and summer, so it's like skeleton, curling, which like, I've never even heard. Curling of. looks like competitive sweeping on ice. And I, a friend, a good friend of mine, actually, a cinematographer, the first, not uh, the second cinematographer I ever worked with, Nancy Kroll. She's a huge curler. She's into it. She, she lives up in Seattle. And I, I remember asking her about curling. I think I said exactly, uh, what the hell is that? And she explained it to me, and it sounds very thrilling. I don't find it thrilling to watch. Other people want to watch it? Go for it. I don't care. But I bet you're right, Alana. I bet it's going to drive massive subscriptions on Peacock. And, uh, you know, maybe that'll... Yeah, I think that's what they're hoping for. I guess right now their statistics are they only have about 10 million subscribers for Peacock. Which is low. I I actually looked up the number of subscribers because I was talking to someone about it, and, and they were curious. The subscribers estimated for Netflix... Worldwide, 200 million. Mm-hmm. That's and, a lot of people. And Amazon Prime, it's about the same. Yeah, uh, th- this person was like not especially savvy about the way, h- how these streaming services are able to make all these big budget projects. And I was like, well, if you convince 200 million people to give you like 15 bucks a month every month of their lives, you're going to be silly with money. Did you hear how many HBO has? Just out of curiosity, I, I, I don't know. I, I did not look that up. What HBO Max should do is they should have Zack Snyder release a cut of every movie in their catalog. So they have about, HBO Max now has about 70 million subscribers. Whoa, that's a lot. They want more. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the goal. They're not going to rest until they get everybody. So the real question is, how many people in Japan have to die so that Peacock can have more subscribers? I, I don't think that that's I don't think that's actually the the value proposition here is death versus subscribers for Peacock. I think that the Japanese government's being held hostage by the IOC and there isn't really anything anyone can do about it. So at least it doesn't seem like it. I mean, I, I don't know what sort of state of emergency they have to declare to have it not happen. And it sounds like there's no tourists who are going to be able to go there. It's only going to be for locals. And, and even then, I don't know how many locals are actually going to go. Well, and, and I was uh, reading that they're going to have pretty strict, like they're, <laughs> they're saying uh, clap quietly and don't cheer, you know, like. Mm-hmm. D- That's right. They said clap. Yeah. And the poor condom companies aren't able to put their products out there either. 
Sorry, at what? the Olympic Village. Oh, yeah. Uh, Alana's talking about the condoms, the condoms at uh, Olympic Village. Did you hear about that? I, I didn't hear about the condoms at the Olympic Village. Uh, so every year, you know, people party at the Olympic Village and they're discouraging alcohol and, and going out to eat and all that kind of thing. And one of the things they would do is they would freely distribute condoms amongst all the people who were there. Many thousands, thousands of condoms are given <laughs> away to the Olympic athletes in the Olympic Village. And I guess after people compete in particular, they're kind of around for the rest of the Olympics and they don't really have anything to do and they have to be there for the closing ceremonies and i guess there's a lot of uh sex he has a lot of sex that goes on in the olympic village with these wow uh, yeah yeah. i didn't realize that we were heading into close focus after dark that's pretty amazing well i mean Um, come on it's these like hot totally fit athletes uh, okay in their 20s you know so so this year the condom sponsor of the olympic village is telling all the athletes to take them home and use them later don't use them here But, you know, this is Japan. So there's all these innovations and these condom companies have come up with some new designs that they wanted to show off at the Olympics and they were going to be distributing them. And so they've been very disappointed. I'm kind of sure what I'm about to say won't make the cut. (laughs) But I just want to say, if you're going to be releasing prophylactics and sex related products at the Olympics and we're dealing with a respiratory disease, I think the gimp suit people need to get in on this. (laughs) That that would be very safe sex. (laughs) Like they could build an air filter into the gimp suit. Covered with lace. And then and then you could have your condom too. And and uh anyway, I'm sorry, that is way too X-rated for our family podcast. I apologize to all our listeners. Uh, Wait a second. What wasn't the gimp suit prominently featured in pulp fiction? It was, yeah. So it comes back around to cinematography. I mean, you could even get the furry community in on this. Anything where you have your your face covered, you could you could definitely have some kind of an air filter mask, and then these athletes could. Uh, <laughs> this is all so stupid. Anyway, you know get their kink on. There you go. <laughs> all right. So for those of you who actually want to learn more about the Olympic controversy in Tokyo and why the Japanese government's hands are tied, uh, you should tune in to the latest Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He does a really good uh, explanation of the entire thing. So, uh, Ben, I think it's about time to... And I believe it's all on YouTube for free, by the way. I don't think you even need to have an HBO subscription. Yes, they usually have clips that you can find. All right. So, hey, let's get to the interview with Alice Brooks. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so we are here uh, bi-coastally with Alice Brooks, DP of In the Heights. Thank you so much for coming on. In the Heights is an incredible achievement, both visually and musically, and I have so many questions about it, but I kind of want to just hear your your entry into the world of In the Heights and maybe what you were going with, and that might even steer some of my questions as well. So, like, how did In the Heights come to you, and what were your first impressions of being, I believe, the first theatrically released feature of a Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, if I'm not mistaken? So I have known the director, John M. Chu, since college. We both went to USC to film school together, and we bonded over our love of musicals. Um, He asked me to shoot his short musical, When the Kids Are Away, Mm -hmm. in 2002. And we shot the musical and then did lots of other sort of music and dance-driven projects over the last two decades. Wow. And when I heard he was doing In the Heights, 
I was very excited and wanted to be part of the project, but at the time didn't know if if that was going to be possible. I had shot a lot of indies and we'd worked a lot together before, but I knew In the Heights was going to be a, a big Warner Brothers movie. So when John and I were doing a television series in Canada called Home Before Dark for Apple TV Plus, and that's when he mm-hmm. asked me to shoot In the Heights and I was beyond thrilled. I grew up watching musicals. Uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers were on repeat at our house when I was a little girl. We lived in oh, wow. New York till I was 10 before we moved to Los Angeles. And I got to go to Broadway shows from time to time. Into the Woods was the first show I ever saw on Broadway, the first musical I saw on Broadway. We listened to the Peter Pan musical all the time and My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, constant musicals in our house. And so it is my dream to have gotten to shoot in the Heights. So uh, that, that was actually one of my questions when you started talking about being a fan of musicals. Were you more a fan of stage musicals, like going to see them in the theater, or are you more of a fan of movie musicals, or do you just love musicals and music and dance numbers? Both are different experiences, so I can't say I like one more than the other. Um, I remember watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers do this one number, and I had heard that she had to dance for two days. I mean, I was very young when I heard this, and mm. and her her they kept changing her shoes because her feet were so bloody from mm. from doing the number for two days. And it is the most beautiful dance number. And I've always been in awe of dancers. I think they're the most remarkable human beings. They're superhuman what they can do. And I am constantly inspired by dancers, by their work ethic and determination and never complaining and powering through any challenge. And I just love dancers and I can't dance myself, but I'm lucky enough to get to capture dance with my camera. So aesthetically, this is something that I'm always interested in when I'm watching dance done on film is how to present it, you know, because like on stage, it's very different, Uh, you know, watching, uh, for instance, the Hamilton musical. I think it's not exactly a one to one thing, but the Hamilton musical on Disney Plus versus this where you have, you know, you're in real locations or what appear to be real locations for so much of it, Um, even though you do some stuff like there's that vertical dance on the side of the building towards the end of the movie, which is a whole other conversation and we'll get to it. But how do you go about even building the visual approach to shooting a dance sequence? Do you need to see the dance first? Like, do they rehearse the whole dance and have it ready and then show it to you and the director and you figure out how you're going to cover it? Or is the coverage kind of baked into the cake? And I'm sorry if this is just a stupid, ignorant question, but I've, I've never been involved in a sequence like this. And, uh, and, and so it's interesting to hear, like, how do you go about building these sequences that feel so perfectly designed? So I think to answer that question, I should backtrack to 2009 when John Chu, Chris Scott, who's the choreographer of In the Heights, and I did a series, a web series for Paramount and Hulu called The Legion of Extraordinary Dancers. And it's 30 episodes, three seasons. We shot over the course of, I want to say, two and a half years, maybe. Wow. And it was a project that was a labor of love, and especially when it started. And all three of us figured out how we work together and how we capture dance and how we use dance to tell a story and to develop characters. And so the three of us really got used to working together and working quickly and figuring out little teeny details to make the dance so much better. So that was basically our playground. And in the end, 11 years later, here we are with In the Heights being released. And while we were making the movie, John said to Chris and me, he said, 
we've been working our whole careers for this one moment. And one thing that's unique to In the Heights is that each character's hopes and their dreams, their fears and their anxieties can be played not only out through not only song and dance, but through the environment around them. And sometimes the environment shifts to where they are emotionally. And so I think Chris, John, and I started to learn that during the LXD, during the Legion of Extraordinary Dancers, and brought that to In the Heights. And so in terms of your question, we... John Chu and I would spend our mornings location scouting, and sometimes Chris would come when we were getting close to being positive this was the right location for the scene. And then the afternoons we would spend at the dance rehearsal space. And John and I literally prepped the movie in the dance rehearsal space. We rarely were at our office. We'd be in the corner and Chris Scott would be working with the dancers and then he'd have something to show us. And then the three of us really respect and trust each other's opinions. And Chris would show us stuff and John sometimes would jump in and say, you know, this part's great, but for the location, we really, it would be great if we did something this way. And and I would go, you know, you're orienting it in one direction and the lighting is going to be better this way because the sun comes from this direction. Mm. And Chris would pivot and and figure and work with us. And the other night at the premiere, Chris and I were talking a lot about how we work together. And he said the next time we do a musical, it would be great to even start earlier the discussions of things um, between the three of us. And for me to get into dance rehearsal the second he starts choreographing, because the more time we have, the better everything comes out. And it was just a complete joy to get to do In the Heights with him again. We've, we've talked about several of the sequences that, that are, again, if you're a fan of music and dance, you cannot miss this movie. But the scene that I think is most emblazoned on my mind, and I brought it up earlier, is a scene, it's towards the end of the movie, where two characters are sitting on a balcony, and one of them keeps leaning back uncomfortably backward, and I'm like, what's about to happen? It's, you know, like, it's, it's not the kind of movie that's going to go super dark, but he, like falls backward and then his feet land on the side of the building and the dance number happens up the side of the building between the two characters and it's obviously using visual effects but it's just an amazing visual achievement can, can you talk about how that was I, i'm assuming that that's not in the original script you know that that's not from the play that's an addition how did the idea for that come about and, and how did you go about executing it because it really is just a, a gorgeous sequence Well, John, Chris, and I had always sort of dreamed about doing a number on the side of a building. And then when John told me about In the Heights, he said, when the sun goes down, it's going to be it. It's going to be the moment we get to film a dance number on the side of a building. He's like, it's the perfect number to do it. And I remember I had seen this amazing dance troupe. I think it's called Banda Loop. They use ropes and they do these dances on the sides of buildings. And it's incredible if you ever have a chance to see it live. I mean, you can go on YouTube and see it too, but but to see, I saw it live in person. And it's just like this amazing experience watching people dance on the side of the building. And we started discussing this number day one of prep. We knew it was going to take everyone's thought process and energy to make it work. It was complicated and we needed everything to be seamless to do it. We did pre-visualization on that in a motion capture environment where the choreographer came with two dancers, not with Leslie and Corey, but with two dancers. John and I and the visual effects supervisor were all on this motion capture stage working out what looked best to 
cell-defying gravity. How do we make it feel like she's almost going to fall then doesn't, or when she touches the water, or what orientation the horizon should be for the George Washington Bridge. And so the visual effects people put in a really rough background of what it would look like, and we had the goggles on, and we did all the motion capture footage, and then we started to design the set around that. And we found a real building in Washington Heights that has that exact vantage of the George Washington Bridge. I asked that all the plate shots for that background be shot on a very specific day. And luckily the weather was perfect because there's a certain day during Manhattan Henge where the sun is the furthest north in the sky. And I wanted to make sure the sun was as far north as possible for the angle of the light on the building. And then we replicated that angle of light on the stage. And we sort of had this analog digital way of doing the lighting because the way the set was built is we had a flat wall that is the side of the building. So it's a flat floor, but it looks like it's a brick building. And then the fire escape is vertical and hydraulic wise, it tilts and then falls into like a postage stamp right into the flat wall. And so the number starts with them, with the Benny and Nina in the fire escape. And then she sits against the window and Corey, as the wall is tilting, braces himself and climbs up the wall as it's slowly tilting. He climbs up backwards on the wall, essentially. And we realized the way to sell the number. Originally, we're like, well, should we mount the camera to the wall and then it'll all just sync up perfectly? And then we realized, no, the we needed as long a shot as possible for the beginning and as long a shot as possible for the end to sell it. And we also, um, lighting wise, it was a huge challenge because where the sky is changes. It changes from being above you to being behind you because of the orientation of the floor. And then we also needed the sun source. We had a huge, a 20K Fresnel on a giraffe crane with for people pushing the crane and one lamp operator on the crane because the sun needed to also move so that the shadows on the wall would stay consistent as the fire escape tilted. And then we had an arc of 120 sky panels through diffusion as our sky source. It was locked into time code as the set falls then the lights slowly go back at the same speed as the as the hydraulic wall tilts down because we needed to keep the sky consistent, we needed to keep the shadows consistent, we needed to keep all the lighting consistent so that it didn't give away anything. So it was a massive challenge. And then we're in a green screen environment all around the set, which the plate that we've shot on that idyllic day in June, six weeks again, six weeks before we ever shot the visual effects plate unit you know, went out and shot our, our plate shot for that so in the last year year and a half we've we've all gotten uh, quite inured to uh watching movies watching all of our entertainment on our on our wonderful televisions at home during the pandemic but you know your movie's coming out right as in america here we're opening finally opening back up and people are going back to the movies quiet place part two just was a giant box office hit and you know i'm assuming you made this before the pandemic i i, I could swear i even saw trailers for it before the pandemic happened so it's we've been waiting to see it can you talk about like making a movie for the big screen versus making something because you've done a lot of television but making something that's that's for the big screen and, and how important it is for people to see it that way we made in the heights in 2019 pre-pandemic it was supposed to come out in june 2020 a year ago and was delayed a whole year and you do have the option of seeing it on hbo max but 
we shot it to be a big theatrical experience, a experience where you get to sit next to strangers in a dark theater and experience in the heights. We shot it for a massive screen. We didn't shoot it for your television screen. And the sound design is for Dolby Atmos. And it's amazing, immersive experience to see in the heights on the big screen. And so if you can safely do it, I would definitely suggest go see it in the movie theater. Even if you watched it already on HBO Max, go see it in the movie theater. It is two totally different experiences. And you know, I really do want people to see it the way it was intended. I want to talk about your camera work because your camera work feels unbound, but I know that you're shooting, or I think you're shooting in very real locations, a lot of it. I would almost compare it to, uh, to like Baz Luhrmann kind of camera work where I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like, I wouldn't even know how to think about covering a scene like this. And I mean this as a compliment. It's like the camera just seems like it can go everywhere and float and move around. Were there enormous logistical challenges in doing that? Every day was a huge challenge on In the Heights. I say often that it was like a fairy tale making the movie. Like we had so many challenges creatively and hurdles to jump over every day. And in the end, it felt like this huge triumph. And we did, we shot for 49 days. The movie had a 49 day shooting mm, schedule. That's really tight for something like that, isn't it? You always want more days. Yeah. Um, so, yes. And then 39, I mean, I'll, when we start to talk about specific numbers, I mean, some numbers we had one day to shoot. Um, like Ooh, Carnival del Barrio me, really? is wa- one shoot day. For, we did 14 hours from sunup to sundown because we were daylight oh my dependent. God. Shooting in a little teeny alley in a courtyard in the back of a built in the back of four buildings, is, this concrete alley. I mean, do you have any idea how many setups you did in that, in that time? That scene is so covered and again i mean this is the highest compliment nothing about that feels rushed it feels like perfectly constructed from from top to bottom like how many setups were you able to do in that day the way that day worked was uh well john chris scott and i spent a lot of our sundays going through the next week because the schedule was so tight and Mm -hmm. so we'd meet on our one of our two days off at john's apartment and airdrop videos that we each had taken it down at dance rehearsal and go, okay, this angle, this angle works, this angle doesn't, this should really be a crane shot, which obviously you don't have a crane in dance rehearsals. But um, for Carnival, we knew we needed crane shots. And there was one way in and one way out in that alley. And it was very in the courtyard and it was very, very small. So the day before the rigging grips had to bring our crane in and it was put up on a platform and we shot all the crane shots shooting west before lunch. So the first half of our day was all our crane shots, um, which is a lot of the second half of the number. And then, but that was the only way to do it because it was going to take hours to get the crane into such a tight space. Then during lunch, they could get it out of there in an hour. It was pulled Mm -hmm. out. And then we did all our steady cam shots and all our slider shots. And we had three cameras rolling. So all the, the 360 degree shots of the whole courtyard. I mean, that's just such an impressive, uh, that's an impressive sequence. And it's crazy to think you, you were able to do that in a day. I mean, you, nothing about it feels like, oh, we're just going to bang this out. It all just feels so perfectly designed. Were you using previs or storyboards or like what, what was the shot plan that, that you were going off of? Some numbers were storyboarded. Other numbers weren't. Some numbers we had dance rehearsal footage that we could cut into the storyboard. So John created these animatics 
from the storyboards and our dance rehearsal. Oh. And then and then when the sun goes down, we did do a previs on um, as well. So um, because that one was very complicated technologically to do. Oh, I bet. Was there any discussion early on on doing the movie more on sets than on real locations just because of the logistical challenges real locations would provide? So when we first got to Washington Heights in March of 2019, it was freezing cold. We were all bundled up. There were pictures of us standing in the middle of an empty high bridge swimming pool, um, <laughs> imagining what summer was going to be like in Washington Heights. And every day we go look at locations and there were some things we thought we were going to build on set. And one of those is Pacenci Fay. We thought that would be uh, on the soundstage. But then we started looking at other locations and we started, I mean, we even looked at the United Palace where we premiered the other night in Washington Heights as a potential for Pacenci Fay because John wanted that number to be an elegant ballet and that to be the most theatrical number. And so we looked at stage spaces, we looked at different theaters, we looked at beautiful architectural spaces in downtown in New York. But the idea of a train kept coming to him as a train, the train being a transportation device to get us through the immigrant's journey. And mm. a Pacencia Fe is Abuela's journey to America. And he always wanted an elegance about it. And so we shot that at a real location. And that was also a day originally um, to shoot that number. It was going to be a day in the abandoned subway and one day, and then a second day at the graffiti tunnel, which is at 191st Street in Washington Heights. And we ended up with a second day at the abandoned subway station because we had to bring in all these vintage train cars and then a modern train car as well. And so I think we ended, I think there were five train cars total. And in the middle of our shoot, a trash train car had to come through our set. So we had to pause and it was like a three hour pause and that killed our day. Oh my so God. we ended up having to come back the following week because we couldn't, we couldn't come back the next day. And so we had all our rigging. I mean, it took five days to rig and to pre-light that space, but then we were allotted one day to shoot it originally on the shooting schedule. That's just I'm I'm sorry I'm just I'm just blown away at how much amazing looking work you were able to do in such a short period of time. I mean like that it never even occurred to me that that uh you know when you get to a studio level like this I just assume you get as much time as you want but also when you're dealing with just a municipality like New York City and the costs associated with doing that stuff it makes sense that you would your your time would be limited but oh my god. You know and you also think Lynn Manuel Miranda is a producer on this and you know he's the most successful uh, writer on Broadway at the moment. So, you know, you you figured the doors would open, but everything has a Well, I think the reality is we had 17 numbers to shoot and John's imagination is unlimited. And he dreamed really big for this movie. And he had these massively huge ideas for the musical numbers. And the reality was that if we wanted to achieve all of that, we needed to work very efficiently and very quickly Mm. and be really, really well prepped. I don't know if you're able to talk about this at all, but you shot Lin-Manuel Miranda's feature directorial debut, uh, Tick, Tick, Boom. That's got to be just amazing working hand in hand with the man himself. Working on Tick, Tick, Boom was completely amazing. The teaser came out yesterday. 
So that is exciting that some first footage from the movie is being released. It comes out this fall. I mean, he's an amazing person to collaborate with. He's an amazing leader. And I'm really proud of what we achieved. Um, I don't know if a, there's much more I could say at this point, but hopefully in the future we can talk about it. You yeah, know? I mean, I'm, I'm um, sure Hopefully it's, uh... after the movie comes out. Well, when it, when it comes out, we, yeah, we, we'd love to have you back on. So, so let's uh, go back. I always want to know the moment with any cinematographer when it occurred to them that cinematography was a career. Like, when in your life did this come into your life? So I grew up in New York City. My dad was a playwright. He had something like 30 published plays. And my mom was an actress. But then when she had me and then my sister, she stopped acting and she started putting us in, she put us in acting. So I did almost 40 national commercials as a kid. I was on Broadway one night doing a tribute to Mary Martin. And I was on Late Night with David Letterman once a week um, when I was in fifth grade every Tuesday. I didn't have to go to school and I got to go do Letterman. And when I was 15, I realized that wasn't my dream. It was my mom's dream for me, or it was really her dream. And she gave it up to have kids. And, but I knew it wasn't my dream. I didn't want to be an actress, but my sister was always on a TV series every year. And I would get picked up after school and go to whatever soundstage she was at, you know, Warner Brothers or Paramount. And what I would do in the afternoons would be, I'd sit in the corner doing my homework, but I'd be watching all the lighting people. And I realized that was what I loved. And when I was 15, I auditioned for a movie seven times called While You Were Sleeping, a Sandra Bullock movie. And there's um, one oh, of yeah. the family members is was a 15-year-old girl. And I auditioned for that part seven times. And the last audition was in Santa Monica. And um, it was with the director. And afterwards, I left. And I knew I hadn't gotten the part. It was between me and the, the person who did get the part. And we took a long walk in Santa Monica on the beach, my mom and I, and I looked down and found this little sort of gray black um, and white feather with these white dots. And I picked it up and I said, mom, I don't want to be an actress. I want to be a DP. And she said she knew. And um, I still have that feather. It's it's framed. It's in my office. And it was the turning point for me. I focused on still photography in high school. I made sure I got straight A's so I could get into USC. And I just worked really, really hard in high school. And then I did. I got into USC. I went to film school. I met people like John Chu and a bunch of other people who I've continued to work with over the last 20 years. And I've never wanted to do anything else except shoot movies. It is my complete dream job. I think I'm the luckiest person in the world to get to to be a cinematographer. I, we, we interview a lot of people who've gone to film school. We've interviewed a lot of people who haven't gone to film school. And uh, there's always a hurdle post film school and, and a question. Uh, and I think I in looking at your IMDb anyway, I know how you answered this question. Do you uh, when you want to be a cinematographer, do you start by shooting small stuff and shoot until it, the stuff gets bigger and bigger and bigger? Or do you go work on big stuff in like the camera department or the lighting department and work your way up to the DP in, in the bigger stuff. And you appear to be somebody, and please correct me if I'm wrong, who said, I'm going to shoot. I'm, I'm basically just going to be a DP. And that's pretty much what you've done. Like, you don't seem to have too many other credits listed, which doesn't mean that they, they didn't exist. But was that sort of your, the way you kind of architected how you were going to go about your career? Yeah. So I was an undergrad at USC and there wasn't a huge opportunity to shoot tons of projects. I was lucky and I got to shoot some, but when I got out of school, I realized I needed 
more, I didn't have a great reel. I needed more work. So I spent the following year after getting my undergraduate degree, hanging out at USC. And I went to all the graduate students and I said, uh, you know, offered to shoot their projects. And um, I had done a couple of really good shorts in at USC. One was called Ocha Cups for Christmas and we shot it in Japan. We flew to Japan and shot it. Oh, wow. Uh, and so I had a good reel to get me more shorts, but I didn't have a good reel to get me feature work or an agent. And so I stayed at USC and I shot some crazy amount of shorts, like 20 shorts or something, including John Chu is a, a semester behind me at SC. I shot his short when the kids are away. And from that, I got an mm. agent. And then, you know, I would shoot these little independent movies where I'd make a hundred bucks a day and we sh would shoot, you know, feature films in nine days. And it was knowing that that's all I wanted to do. And so I might as well practice, 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 learn, 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 meet people, meet directors. I mean, one short I did, the showrunner, 16 years later, hired me to do a TV series. And it's just, it's always about like the people you meet and the people you bond with making movies. And also I just got to learn so much by practicing and my reel would constantly get better. So that, for me, that was my path. I think each person has their own path, but that was the one I chose. And I put a set of blinders on and that's what I did. And that's how I ended up you know, it was a long path for sure, but, but it's my path. No, I mean, it's, it's great. And, and, you know, constantly getting bigger and bigger. And I feel like the stuff that you're doing now is just enormous. And it sounds to me also like being in LA was kind of a, an important part of your ability to do what you did. Am I, am I correct? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think being in New York would have worked too, but I think being in LA was great for me because I did go to film school there. And so people would recommend me to other p directors in LA or other producers in LA. Um, I love starting my career there. I think I have the most magnificent crew there that I love. I haven't actually made a movie there in five years or something now, but it is a great town to, to learn and to grow and to build your career. And it looks like you've also bounced around doing features, but also doing uh, not not an insignificant amount of TV stuff like uh, Home Before Dark and The Walking Dead, Red, The Red Machete. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, for you, kind of the differences between working in the feature world and working in the TV world? You know, doing Home Before Dark w was wonderful. The showrunners, Dana Fox and Dara Resnick, are just fantastic people to work with. And Joy Gorman was the producer. And we... Um, it was great because all four of us are moms. We all have little girls and um, we were making a, a sh TV show about a little girl, an eight-year-old reporter who breaks a murder case in her town. And we all wanted to make a project to inspire our children and to inspire them to be brave and to be strong. And that just because you're not an adult doesn't mean you don't have opinions and thoughts and ideas and kids are smart and they're really extraordinary. And we wanted to make sure we captured that and um, didn't talk down to children. And I love it. I mean, my daughter and I, the new second season I didn't work on, but comes out tonight and we're going to binge it this weekend. Um, the first one we watched, my daughter just turned six and we last year when the first season came out when she was five, it, we watched it together and it is a very smart show and it's not necessarily a kid's show, but it is for children. I uh, so anyway, I think I love doing TV. That show was extraordinary because it was with such a great group of people and the goal for it was so big. 
I think the career choices I've made so far are about the people I work with, the people I get to work with. I have a family and to leave for, I was gone for 15 months between, I did a movie in Atlanta, the TV series, Home Before Dark in Vancouver, and then um, In the Heights. And I was away from my family for 15 months. And for me, I want to work with people that I want to spend my days with, that I want, that I know are going to be amazing creative collaborators. Um, and I also want to make movies that inspire my child. I, I want to make movies that I'm proud to show her. It was the most thrilling thing to be able to be at the premiere the other night with my daughter. She was my, you know, walked the red carpet with me and watched the movie sitting in my lap and I, it is a moment I oh, will wow. never forget is being able to share the premiere with her. And so I think anyone with a family, a mom or a dad or anyone who's got little kids, I think picking the projects that are worth it is that's to me is, is how I choose my projects now. That's a great way to think about it. Is your daughter like, I have a three-year-old son, so, you know, I, he's completely unaware of what I'm doing. But like at six, is she like aware of what you did on that movie? Does she understand how intrinsic a part of that film y- your work was? Yeah, she is. Um, during the premiere, at the screening of the premiere, she's seen the movie 10 12 times. She knows all the lyrics. She wants to be Vanessa. She cuts up paper and creates fashions and says, I'm Vanessa in the Heights. And Mm. during Carnival, she was crying and she whispers in my ear when the number's over and says, don't worry, mom, I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm crying because it's so beautiful. Oh, wow. She does get it. She knows what I do. And she writes her own stories and says she wants to make movies when she grows up. And if she really does, I hope she gets to do that. That's amazing. That's actually a great place for us to wrap up. Before we go, is there a place online where people can find your work or, you know, Instagram or something where people can interact with you? Yeah, Instagram is great. I'm at underscore Alice Brooks underscore and um, I'm on Instagram all the time. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And congratulations on In the Heights. Can't wait to see Tick, Tick, Boom. And uh, amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I loved all your questions. So thank you so (laughs) much. Hey, Ilya, you know what time it is now? (laughs) Oh, I sure do. It's time to pay the bills. So who do we need to thank this week for uh, paying those bills? Uh, we got to thank our friends over at Aperture. Aperture has been doing an incredible job continuing to come out with new lights and new modifiers. And uh, this week is no exception. By the time this podcast goes live, there's going to be two new accessories for the LS60, which is the small focusable light. And the first one is a softbox and it's a compact square softbox. So it's not huge, but they give you two different types of front diffusion. One that will knock down uh, your exposure about one and a half stops, another one about two and a half stops. And it has a 45 degree lighting control grid. So it's going to keep all of your lights heading in the same direction. The diffusion area is a little bit larger than a one by one panel and it includes a carrying bag, essentially turning sort of your your LS60 light into a one by one panel with this soft egg crate style softbox that you can oh, use for cool. any sort of in- interviews and things like that. The other new accessory, which I think is pretty cool, is a 15 to 30 degree two times zoom adjustable focus projection Ooh. lens. So it's going to give you a uh, precision 
chromatic aberration free light Whoa. projection. So and it, it essentially it's going to double the length of your your light. And now it's really got this extra zoom capabilities. Plus, it's going to have a, an iris and a gobo holder. And it's going to also have an 80 percent edge to edge consistent illuminance. And uh, it's just a, a really it's a really clever Leco type of a, attachment that you can put on this little light. And for a little light to have that, it's something fairly unheard of in the industry, which is which is pretty cool. They uh, they continue to blow my mind with how they are revolutionizing how we do all the, all the stuff. And uh, I'm not just saying that because they're our sponsor. I uh, their products are pretty amazing. It's it's amazing what they do. And now short ends. So Ben, now that the bills have been paid, what's your obsession this week? What is what is your short end? Well, uh, our good friend Kay's Alatracci invited me last week to go see a movie in a theater. His first out of uh, quarantine. And What'd you see? We saw the new Edgar Wright documentary, which is called The Sparks Brothers, and it is shot by somebody named Jake Polanski, who we should probably get on the show someday. I've never seen an Edgar Wright movie that I didn't enjoy, and his work is really amazing, and it's really precise and visual and clever. Like, his stuff is super clever. And The Sparks Brothers, if you just took me in their sight unseen, I would have been like, this is the most brilliant fake documentary about a band that never existed that I've ever seen. The difference is it's a real band that's been around for 50 years, over 50 years. And the band is called Sparks. They're kind of awesome and they're extremely quirky and they've been almost famous since the 60s. Like they've been kind of tiptoeing up to it and they've had a couple of hits and they're kind of like one of those bands that other musicians idolize. And when you watch this documentary, you realize that there are many trends in music that they just started because they're brilliant and and uh you know like one of them was they did an all synthesizer album in like 1979 and you listen to it and you're like this sounds like new order or pet shop boys or uh, yeah, yeah cocteau twins like a lot of the uh new wavy kind of synthy stuff and some of uh, some i would even say kind of like edm they kind of created that but before then they had been like a regular night uh, like a 60s rock band and they are fascinating and the two guys they're brothers uh one of them uh, especially i mean still to this day one of them is kind of more stage and camera friendly like like leaning out and the other one literally when they started had a hitler mustache um <laughs> and i mean it's, it's, it's always fashionable the hitler it's mustache. details like that well and you might say well it's like a charlie chaplin mustache maybe more oh, yeah. like that than hitler <laughs> but um they are so interestingly odd and uh, I actually tweeted this and Alex Winter responded. I feel like it would pair really well with the Zappa documentary that Alex Winter made mm. because they're both kind of a deep dive into an artist. In the case of Zappa, Zappa had enormous success. And in the case of these guys, I would say they've actually had enormous success. They've just never been like you household they, name. Yeah, they've. Yeah, it's never been a household name. I'd never heard of them when I saw the documentary. There was only one song in it that I was sure that I'd heard before. And since I saw the documentary, I can't stop listening to their music. Their music is really quirky and interesting and complex. And I think also in, in that way, they're a little bit like Zappa in that their music has so much going on in it. And uh, and it and it's so clever and also so funny. The lyrics are really funny. And it's Hitler mustache guy, I think, writes most of their music. And he doesn't have a Hitler mustache now. He, he kind of looks like Leonard Nimoy. 
now. But uh, it's such a well-made documentary. It's Edgar Wright's first documentary. It's so well-made. It's so visual. And the subject matter is brilliant. He gets amazing interviews with Duran Duran and Beck and Weird Al Yankovic and Patton Oswalt. And like there's there's just like a, a, a murderer's row of interesting people talking about it. Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, you know, you realize it's, it's always interesting when you realize you know, the artist, you see it in any art form. There's always that comedian who isn't famous, but other comedians all love and, and follow. Or, you know, like Jonathan Winters, who I guess was famous, but like, you know, Robin Williams, who followed in his footsteps, became far more famous. Or, you know, there, there's always a band or whatever that, you know, a painter, what a filmmaker. There are filmmakers that other filmmakers love that have never like had giant mainstream success. And I feel like these are that for all of music for the last 50 years. It's insane. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I admit I was totally unfamiliar with them before I started hearing buzz about and, this documentary. And you're so. someone who has very eclectic music taste. Like I would expect you to be like, oh, Sparks, I have seven of their albums, which would still be a minority because they have 25 albums. <laughs> You know, I had heard of them, but had never heard them. So, uh, yeah, at least or I didn't knowingly hear them. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, I, I'm, I'll check it out. I'm interested. Yeah, however, however you can see it. I don't know if it's streaming yet. I'm sure it'll be streaming eventually. Uh, but and it was worth seeing in the theater, by the way, seeing documentaries in the theater, I feel like is one of the casualties of amazing streaming services because so many of them make documentaries and it's good to see a documentary on the big screen, especially when it's directed by someone like Edgar Wright, who knows how to use a big screen, you know? Uh, I agree. And with the return of the film festival, I think we will start to see those documentaries back on the big screen. I think that some of these streaming services, they want the Academy praise. They're going to start trying to find ways to put it out there in front of an audience so they can collect some of the uh, some of the golden statues at the, uh, you know. Well, I don't know if it'll happen, but I I definitely think uh, the Sparks Brothers is it's a documentary I will go back to and refer to. And, you know, I definitely see more often. So, uh, Ilya, what is your short end this week? Wow, my short end has uh, has a funny name. It is the, uh, and I think I actually mentioned it on the show before, but it is the Tilta Hydra Alien Car Mounting System. So the mm. Hydra Alien Car Mounting System is a product that is is really going to be interesting to people looking to do car mounts uh, with a gimbal, with a stabilized gimbal. There's been a lot of other systems out there that have existed before, but not quite like this one. This one is based around the Ronin S2, which is a small uh, handheld style gimbal, very inexpensive. That's under $1,000. This kit is also really inexpensive in sort of the uh, Tilta fashion. It's a $1,300 product, $1,299. It's actually in stock right now over at Hot Rod Cameras that this is part of where my obsession comes from is that we just got a bunch of them and I was looking at it Uh, but it uses suction cups and it uses very very clever shock absorbing systems it has battery mounts uh, so you can you know you can power it via V mount or gold mount and uh, of course the nice thing about these little remote systems is besides being incredibly strong and holding a, a decent amount of weight you have remote control capabilities so talk about being able to control pan tilt roll and there's even like a a boom system that they make with it now so yeah it's it's really really uh elaborate very smartly thought out gimbal mounted car system for very little money and uh, i think that you're gonna see people i mean granted you still have to safety it appropriately you still have to do all the sort of stuff you would do for appropriate ringing but it's really small and seems to be really effective and very wind resistant and a lot of other systems out there have had issues with that that have sort of like come before and were not built around such stout little systems so i know that they're thinking 
thinking that it's for the the mirrorless camera, the small camera crowd, but uh, you can get away with putting 10 pounds on this thing, and that's a pretty hefty bit of kit. So I expect that you're going to see it might become overused in the way that slow motions become overused, but some really, really clever scraping the ground or, uh, you know, dialogue scenes all happening in cars now with some extra motion and stuff. It's really, it's, it's pretty it's, it's pretty I, cool. I ha- yeah, I have a, a terrible dark question to ask, though. Someone yeah. who's pinching pennies so much that they're going to save money on a car mount system. Are they going to hire a grip who will properly secure it to a car? They should, of course. Uh, and, you know, they shouldn't be using these out in, on open public streets where, you know, they could get into trouble or it could fall off and it could harm other people. There's a lot of safety issues that come around shooting cars and it's why some big film schools actually don't allow their students like at least one of them one big southern california based film program doesn't allow students to do anything car mounted out uh like they'll get an f they'll fail if they do car really? mounted stuff yeah so yeah it's um I, i've, I've, heard, like I've you heard you could just make it a prerequisite that you show them the paperwork or footage of you securing it properly or whatever I, like i think they, they use it as an excuse to also though teach poor man's process which is faking car shots and there's all kinds of stuff that you can do with that or you could actually put someone in the back of the car with a camera to to shoot stuff there's things that you can do but car mounts and certain other sorts of dangerous tools i, I know at least one program it bans them so you know uh, the kids won't get themselves into trouble and here i say kids it's all people in their 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 20s and 30s usually (laughs) those kids well now that we're old men so that's right all those youngins but but anyway yeah Mm -hmm. it's a a cool system uh it's on the hot rod cameras website it's it's in stock it's it's clever if you were thinking about getting into something like that uh you could certainly do a lot worse and uh this gives you a lot of capabilities now granted you do have to also invest in the dji ronin s2 but once you have these two things and put them together yeah it's it's uh it's it's pretty damn cool well and the ronin obviously is just a great gimbal to have in the first place if you're doing lots of shooting so you know agreed well cool Ilya. i think that wraps us up where can people find you on the internet uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. That's our, our shop. Uh, also, I've been getting a lot of uh, LinkedIn messages this this month. So anyway, yeah, LinkedIn. You can, me you can too. Find me cool. From the podcast. People saying, yeah, people reaching the podcast. out and, and being yeah. excited about the, the podcast and reaching out via, via LinkedIn. And uh, obviously, you can also check out our podcast at camnoir.com. That's where all of our episodes are. Uh, feel free to listen to our whole catalog. We have uh, just some pretty amazing people on here that we've we've been lucky enough to talk to. You can find me at benrockonline.com. And uh, there you can find my link to the dread LinkedIn. Or you could just look <laughs> for me on LinkedIn. I'm not I'm not a hard person to track down online. I'm on uh, Twitter at Neptune Salad. Uh, yeah. Uh, feel free to interact with me online. So, Ilya, who should we thank this week? Let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. Let's thank him for getting you out of the house, taking you to a movie. Holy crap. Yeah, we went to uh, the AMC Theater in uh, in Burbank, the you know the, the, the big nice one, and uh, saw a kick-ass music documentary. Very, thank you, Kays. And thank you, Kays, for all the music that, uh, that our listeners have heard in this episode. Let's thank uh, Alana Cody. Alana, thank you for joining us for the uh, close focus tonight. It was nice to uh, to mix it up a little bit, have an extra voice in there, especially since the Olympics. You had definitely had strong feelings about the Olympics, and 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 perhaps I did not. So, yeah, yeah. And my feelings about the Olympics are who cares? But oh man, people love the Olympics. And uh, lastly, we did not make Ben Katz's life easy at all today. Uh, ben Katz, our intrepid, hardworking, and amazing editor. Thank you, Ben, for whatever it is you're about to do with the file that I'm going to deliver you, which is not a pretty file. No, this file's got uh, a little bit of work. A little bit of work, for sure. 
All right. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> well, that, that wraps us up, and uh, we've got some amazing interviews coming up thanks to uh, the aforementioned Alana Cody, so we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.